Yes, Honest Actors is back with brand new episodes every Friday. To help me continue releasing new episodes without a sponsor, or to say thanks for your favourite old ones, click the support link in the episode description. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. It's a one-off, feeling generous, good deed for the day sort of thing. Think of it as bumping into me and buying me a drink. To find out more, click the support link. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Uh, yeah, mine's a large red. I hate those guys. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, my name is Jonathan Harden and you're listening to the Honest Actors Podcast Lockdown Special Edition. And this is even more of a departure for the podcast, even more so than the regular lockdown episodes that are now into number four, I think this is. Because for the first time ever in five years, I'm interviewing someone who is not, to my knowledge, nor ever has been an actor. Owen O'Kane is the Sunday Times best-selling author of two books, 10 to Zen and 10 Times Happier. Owen O'Kane has dual medical and psychotherapy training and is a former NHS clinical lead for mental health. His first book, 10 to Zen, was a Sunday Times bestseller. Owen lives in London but grew up in Belfast during the Troubles, which he describes as a great training ground for his current work. He also spent many years of his career working with people living with a terminal illness which has greatly influenced his work. When not writing books, Owen runs his private therapy practice, delivers talks, and contributes to press and media on mental wellness issues. He's a lover of dogs. So we have several things in common, I guess, apart from the troubles in dogs. I first became aware of him and his writing through an interview on Radio 2 about a year and a half ago, and after that went out and bought his book 10 to Zen. I find that book incredibly useful and I've bought a lot of books like it over the years. Very few have I finished and even fewer. In fact, no others have I actually put into daily use. So I was thinking about things to do for this lockdown special edition that might be a bit different and thought, why not reach out and ask him to do an interview? So I'm really delighted that he agreed. So let me just click admit and hopefully by the magic of Zoom, he's here. Hello. Hi, Jonathan. Yeah, how's it going, sir? Are you well? Yeah, I'm very well. Yourself? Yeah, I can't complain. I can't complain can't at all. Complain. Yeah, it's yeah. nice to hear another Belfast accent for a change. I know, it, it is actually. I, I love doing an interview with somebody from home. It's great. It's what, it's what kind of stood out when I first heard you, I think it was on Radio 2, possibly the Jeremy Vine show. And uh, it just makes your ears prick up. Because it's, yeah, we, uh, it, you hear it, it stands out because you're so used to hearing. Yeah, no, exactly. It's quite all warm. the With um, Stephen Nolan last week. And actually, I was about 10 minutes into the interview and I kind of almost forgot like it was an interview because he's kind of, he's very chatty and it, you, you could be in a pub having a chat with him. So it was an interesting interview. I'm sure we digressed a lot. Of course. Time, but anyway, but the, digressions, was, the digressions are always the best bit. Exactly. Exactly. Are you, are you still back home or are you in London? <laughs> 
I am, yeah. I'm kind of, uh, I came back here uh, last June and my wife was pregnant and she gave birth in early September. So that's us, I think, for the foreseeable. I'm just trying to, I was typing away at questions there. And of course, as soon as I open all the other windows, they uh, they go walkie. So just give me one wee sec and I'll, um, take your time. I'll pop these up. But um, uh, there we go. That's not it. There we go. I've a, I've, I've a microphone, so it should be pretty decent. Yeah, decent it sounds stuff. great. Yeah, it sounds great. I'm Take it, you work. use this for work, do you? Um, I've just had the book out recently and a lot of, um, well, I use it for clients um, individually, but a lot of the PR on this book has been done via Skype. So a lot of the radio and TV interviews have been. It's a good background. I'm going to say like, you know, 2020 is the year of the judging other people's backgrounds. And this is a, you've got, may I say so, sir, and don't take this the wrong way. You've got a fine background. Uh, I, I would hope so. <laughs> uh, so listen, I'm going to kick off here. Uh, I'm recording this. Um, I'm only going to use audio, obviously. So yeah, don't be panicking about anything else. Uh, no but I just wanted to start off by saying, first of all, thanks for agreeing to do it. No problem at all. And secondly, thanks for 10 to Zen because um, I bought that book after your interview on Radio 2. And as I've said in the intro to this episode, I bought tons of those type of books and I finished very few and I've actually practiced even fewer. In fact, none, no others. So I found wow. 10 to Zen incredibly useful and still, especially during lockdown, I was using it quite a bit as well. So I have Brilliant. to admit, I don't use it as much as I did when I first got the book. But it was really genuinely useful. So thank oh, you for that. Have you got the latest book? I do. I've got it right here in front of me. You've got yeah. a few behind you. I've got, look, look. See? Perfect. You got it. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, I haven't had a chance to read it, but um, I've been kind of flicking through it and picking bits out. And um, I'm looking forward to when I get a chance, um, get a chance to have a look at it. So how's isolation been for you, Owen? Um, how has it been for me? It started off all right, actually, because I, I was probably way busier than normal um, just with the sheer volume of referrals and I was getting ready to promote the book. So I had a lot to preoccupy me in the kind of first two, two months, really. And then I would say probably the last two weeks, I've started to get a bit twitchy. You know, mm. when you just think, OK, well, enough now. You know, I just I find the sense of... Um, Two things, really. I mean, it's the stuff I talk about all the time, the sense of containment and the lack of freedom. I find that difficult. And I just kind of find the ongoing uncertainty um, slightly challenging. So I suppose in some way, the good thing for me is it's really forced me to practice what I preach yeah, in a much bigger way. I you guess know, the, the uncertainty is the thing, because I, I remember very early on reading an article by a guy who'd been in solitary confinement for years and had said that he found the first two weeks in isolation more difficult because he didn't know when it was going to end. Yeah, And it, yeah. And it was the unknown quantity that really people found so difficult at the beginning. It, it was interesting because a lot of the clients I was working with, people who I expected to struggle with anxiety and stuff at the beginning, interestingly, coped really well. And I think it was in part because everyone was in it together and there was a sense of needing to be safe and secure and it wasn't just their worry. It was a lot of people having to worry and it was a justifiable worry. So what I really surprised me was people with anxiety disorders were coping way better than I thought they would do, certainly in the first month or whatever. And then afterwards, then I think as it went on and on and on, then people then started to naturally deteriorate 
and struggle, uh, you know, because we're not, we're not hardwired to be locked away. Absolutely as, not. And we're not hardwired to disconnect in the way we've had to, you know, as, as human beings, you know, we, we thrive when we're communicating and when we're connecting with people. And of course, a lot of that has been shut down quite a bit. And is there a through, is there a through line to the kind of issues you're, you're seeing day to day? The kind of feelings people are having? I mean, I think some of the stuff is around the normal practicalities around money and work and kids at home and people being stuck with their partner 24, seven, seven days a week. So I think a lot of that stuff, the practical everyday stuff has gotten away. But I think for most people, it's been about um, processing the shock of it all, you know, that we, we weren't really prepared for this. So I think for some people, that's been a challenge. And the, the key thing ultimately has been hard to manage uncertainty. Yeah. I, I, um, I asked online uh, if there's anybody had any questions for you and there was a resounding silence. Um, now, I know yeah. from talking to actors on the podcast that the vast majority of people I've spoken to have been to some kind of therapy. So yeah. what's happened is either everyone out there has already got a therapist and they're quite, they're okay, thank <laughs> you very much, or it's too difficult online to ask for a friend. So that leaves yeah. it down to me and I'm going to have to kind of, you know, work my way through this. So, I'll start with a kind of children's BBC question, John Craven's mm-hmm. News Round. What does a psychotherapist do? What do you do? What is the aim of your work with, with a client? I mean, I'm trained in a couple of different models of psychotherapy. So, for example, if I was using a cognitive behavioral model, if somebody, for example, had patterns of negative thinking or constantly anxious or they were self-critical or self-deprecating my job would be to work on helping them adjust and change those thinking patterns because that has a massive impact the way we think impacts on the way we feel so if somebody was locked in patterns that were unhelpful for them part of my job would be to help them really reframe that and, and think in more helpful ways and then obviously cope and emotionally feel more stabilized so if i was worried that's one context um if somebody else was really struggling in life, I might use a different model of therapy. So there's a model of therapy called interpersonal psychotherapy. So if it was about relationships, communication, or somebody was trying to process a grief or something that they get stuck in, then I might be taking a different angle where I'd be much more curious and I'd be probably exploring in a lot more depth. But in a nutshell, really, psychotherapy, I mean, people people put it out there and it becomes a bit of a kind of, you know, a, almost like a mystic yeah, way that's why I asked the question. I guess it's kind of yeah. it's become a, a kind of a woolly not not for the people in in psychotherapy, but for people outside, it's a bit of a woolly catch-all of things I don't understand to do with my mind. I think it's about making sense of your life, making okay. sense of how you operate, and I suppose ultimately function better. And I suppose what I talk about all the time, and not in, in the latest book, I truly believe that most people can be happier than they are. And what most people don't realize is that they get in the way of their own happiness by the obstacles they create. So two things you said that are quite interesting from a performer's perspective. One is about self-deprecation. And I imagine that's the model that if you're working with performers, particularly in private practice, that comes up again and again, because it's not just self-deprecation, it's it's rejection by others and persistent rejection by others. And uh, the, the other thing is about... Uh, about happiness and about getting in your own way, which is another phrase that actors use all the time about getting in mm. your own way. And of course that can mean a multitude of things, right? Yeah. Um, but I wondered if in the work that you do, 
and you said to me you had some performers in private practice as well. Um, yeah. Do you think being an actor from your experience of working with people or being a performer and all that surrounds that in terms of rejection and all the rest of it has, an, has a specific impact on mental health in your experience? I think it's a, yeah, it's, it's a very specific way of working. And I suppose most actors want to be working. I mean, people, people, you know, you guys do what you do because you want to tell a story. And most of you like to tell stories publicly. And of course, the applause and the adulation and the praise for your work is a really important part of that. And rightly so, because most of us, no matter what we do, want to do well. And like, you know, none of us put ourselves out there to not do well. And I think one of the challenges for many actors, you know, is it's an incredibly competitive industry. Um, and it involves a billions and you guys put yourselves out there over and over and over again. And I think... I think one of the key things if I'm working with any performer, it's going to sound like the biggest cliche in the land, but I do believe it to be true, is that it's really about not personalizing a rejection or not personalizing a critique or a bad review because ultimately, you know, there is always going to be a view, there's always going to be an opinion. And I think ultimately, if I'm working with any performer, it's about bringing them back to trust, trust themselves a lot more really and to kind of start working with their vulnerability because I see a lot of performers doing this here. A lot of performers think they should be stronger. They should be more confident. They should be more successful. And my argument is use your vulnerability. You know, so if you're struggling or you're, you've got self-doubt or you're unsure, you know, bring, bring that to the role. Don't, don't take it away from the role because then you will appear as a real raw human being rather than a robot just trying to deliver a part. So I think... You can be very clever with how you work with your own stuff. And I think for performers, when I watch them do it, um, and often I'll get invited. If I'm working with a performer, um, they'll sometimes invite me along to a show. And I'll give you an example. Actually, I was working with a guy <laughs> who is really well known. And obviously, I'll always protect people's confidentiality. But I was working with a guy who um, had a really huge career, very, very well known. And he had landed a gig in the West End, and it was a lead man role in the West End and he hadn't done theatre in quite a while and he was quite anxious about the, the performance and he came to me for performance anxiety about going on to a West End stage every night for a three-month run and, and I started to work with him and he had a ritual before he'd go on stage I mean he would literally physically get ill before he would go on stage and, and feel sick and of course that kind of narrative of I'm not good enough I'm going to be found out. Uh, <laughs> it's like you're this, in my head. Get out of my head. Yeah. Is this the end of my career? And so, of course, all of the other experiences, all of the other success in his life um, became redundant. And one of the things he had never done was he was going on to stage believing that he had to be polished, he had to be perfect, and that he had to deliver this um, polished piece of work. So what we did in our work together was we reframed it totally. And I said, what about taking a totally different direction and all of the anxiety you're feeling, self-doubt, you know, the worry about how you're seen. What about just transferring all of that to the character? Bring yeah. that vulnerability. And, you know, it was incredible. I went to see him on opening night and I knew there would be um, self-doubt going on and I knew some of his usual rituals would be going on. But, you know, he gave the performance of his life um, on his opening night by literally working with this, rather than working against the kind of the internal demons um he worked with them and let you know let them form the character in some way yeah and i think you know that that's the key thing isn't it we all 
we all try to fight this stuff. And I just kind of think, you know, something go, go away. Yeah, there was a brilliant study done in America by um, a lady called Brené Brown. I don't know if you've heard of her, but she, he's a researcher and she did 12, 13 years on exploring what made people happy. You know, right. what made a happier human being. And after 13 years of research, she discovered that the people who were happiest were the people who could just allow themselves to struggle and be weak and be vulnerable and be truthful about it. They were the happiest people. Um, so, you know, that's kind of the premise of how I work. So this new book, then 10 Times Happier, um, yeah. that was written with no notion of what was about to happen in terms of the pandemic, right? You, Zero. No, no crystal ball. So does that change the advice any? And if you could add a chapter at the end of that book called, you know, being happy in pandemic, what might you add? What might you underline that's already in the book uh, based on what you now know about what we've been, we've been through in the past 10 yeah. weeks? It's a good question. Thank you. Pretty- Pre, pre-pandemic, I genuinely had no idea. So, the, the, you know, the whole idea behind the book was I, I didn't want it to be like a fluffy book on happiness. You know, I think there's a lot of, you know, pardon the expression, but there's a lot of psychobabble and there's a fair degree of bullshit out there. And, and I, didn't yep. want to, I didn't want to produce any fairy dust for you and happiness. I wanted to share my experience, not only as a therapist, but um, I had a medical background before training as a therapist and I spent 10 years working with people who were terminally ill. So I got a really good take on what makes a better life and, you know, how are we, our perspective in life, really. There's, you know, there's no better teachers than people who are dying on how to live a decent life and how to make the best of your time. So when I write these books, I, you know, I talk about my own experience. I talk about my experience of working with the dying. And of course, I talk about my experience of being, of being a therapist. And what I did was I decided that I, I would really think about where I see people struggle most in their lives. And, and how I see them get in the way of their own happiness. And of course, it was about worry. It was about trying to predict the future. It was about fixating on the past. It was about relationships with other people. It was about creating drama in life that sometimes is often unnecessary. So the interesting thing about it, I talk a lot about uncertainty. So when the pandemic came and all of these issues were <laughs> repeating themselves over and over and over again, worry, uncertainty, what's going to happen next? If somebody had to give me a briefing pre-pandemic to write a book, it probably would be this book. Um, so I think it's landed at the right time. The only difference that would be at, at the moment would be is I would really be probably stressing a lot more the importance of just managing stuff one step at a time. And I think that's hugely important. What I've watched a lot of people do is they're trying to predict what's going to come next. What if we get a second wave? What if I don't work again? You know, it's bad enough getting through a pandemic without trying to predict all of the possibilities. If somebody had said to you a year ago, Jonathan, you're going to be navigating your way through a pandemic next year, <laughs> you probably would have laughed and said, yeah, yeah. good luck with that one. And I, would, I can imagine the level of worry that would have created back then. Yeah, you absolutely. That isn't hard but to manage. Had, had you believed it, had you, of course, you, and of course you wouldn't have, right? Yeah, exactly. But the thing is, you know, you have lived through it. You've survived it, as have everyone listened to the podcast. But the thing really is about, I think if we can take anything away from what's happening in this pandemic, we, we can take away one guarantee that life is incredibly uncertain for every one of us. And this can teach us a lot about how we manage that. But one of the things I find really fascinating is that a few actors I've spoken to for the podcast since this started have spoken about the positive impact 
mm. of lockdown on their anxiety. And, and one friend I was talking to said they've spoke to their agent and their agent said, you know what, people have been getting in touch and the, the really anxious ones, as you said at the top of this chat, are much less anxious because mm. it's it's this sense that, well, if nobody's working, comparison becomes redundant for the first time yeah. in their careers. Yeah. And, yeah. and there's no point in looking around, looking over your shoulder. All you can really do is look after what you've got going on day to day. So it becomes this thing where your career, uh, careers don't exist momentarily, which is great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then people feel a bit more at ease with that because, you know, nobody's getting the big gigs at the moment because the auditions are not there for the yeah. moment. But you, the, the interesting thing about comparing, though, one of the chapters in this book is called Comparison is a Thief of Joy. Great quote. And, and I see performers do it a lot. You know, it's very, very easy to look at the actor who's got the big gig or who's landed the soap opera or who's headed, you know, off TLA to do a movie or whatever. But I think there's a real risk in it because, you know, I work with people across the spectrum and I work with people who have got, you know, huge celebrity status and profile, but it doesn't mean that they're happier. And it doesn't mean that they're living a better life. And I think there's a real danger that we idealize people based on their success or their fame or how well they've done. But, you know, it's a really unhealthy way to measure lives because as you well know in the, in the performance game, you know, if people are patient enough, their time comes, you know, the gig comes, their opportunity to tell a story does come. And I think that's one thing a lot of people struggle with is that patience of and holding on to that, knowing that it may not be today or tomorrow, but holding on to that belief that the job will come the opportunity will come. And in the meantime, you know, you perfect your craft, you make the best of life, you develop as a human being in the meantime. And then, you know, each day you just bring a different version to, to the role. And I really, I mean, I wholeheartedly believe that because, you know, I talked recently, I did a campaign on hope with a YouTube guy called Casper Lee. And we did this, um, you know, huge campaign on why hope is really important during a pandemic. And what we know is that when you're hopeful, chemically, the brain changes. So when we're hopeful, you produce more endorphins and more encephalines. And these are the, these chemicals generally make you feel better. It, it's the equivalent of having morphine. So with, when you're hopeful and you're optimistic and you can trust that something better is coming along, um, the chemistry of your brain changes quite significantly. Yeah. And then you function better. So you're less anxious, you're less worried, and your mood improves. And I think that's a pretty decent way to live. Do you find that social media in terms of comparison plays a negative role in that the people are comparing themselves with false versions mm -hmm. of other people more and more that these kind of two-dimensional avatar avatar fake lives that people yeah, seem to yeah. present on social media yeah. not being real um that that is progressively becoming an issue in terms of adversely affecting people's mental health i think it is and i think particularly with younger people, because if, if you go on there, I mean, I think people go on to social media often out of boredom or habit, you know, it's, I, you know, I notice sometimes you just go on and you're scrolling and you think, I don't even know why I'm on here. <laughs> you know, yep. it's just like an absolute boredom thing sometimes. And then you can't go, I noticed even that I, I didn't do social media until about a year ago when I started doing the books and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I did notice that you can't go on there and there's a real danger that you can believe that everyone's life is better than your life because you know, you only by and large see the glossy version of people's lives. You know, you, you see the six pack, you see the, the white teeth, you see the glowing smile, you see the, 
the kind of the parties and the and the good life, you don't see human suffering on there. And I think, you know, one of the things that I, I'll always talk to when I'm working with a client is that often what you get is you just get a snapshot image of someone's life. Doesn't mean it's the true picture. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a healthy way to approach social media, that it's just a version of life that you see there. It's not the entirety of someone's life. Um, and the more you can realize that, then I think social media can become a healthier place. And of course, in my line of work, what I on Instagram, you know, I suppose I'm doing something a bit different, and which was interesting. You were talking earlier there about people not asking questions. So when I started out on social media as a psychotherapist, my publisher and the agent were saying, well, we want you to get a bit more profile to get yourself out there. Now, have I been honest about it? I kind of resented every thing about having to do this. I just thought, I really don't want to be there. I don't want to be that person. I, have no idea, I had no desire to build followers or to, to be more liked and all of that stuff. Because in my line of work, I just think it's a road to disaster, really. But at the same time, I could see that it was a platform and a useful platform for reaching people and helping people to talk <clears throat> and what started out as you know 50 followers there's nearly 13,000 followers or whatever on there and encouraging them to talk about mental health and share their stories um it's amazing for me actually to see the need there is and to see how responsive people will be if they think that they're not going to be judged or shamed or made feel less than and I think kind of really that's what I've learned on social media the more inclusive you can be and the more you can normalize humanity, then people are comfortable with that. But I think there's a bit of a fear that, you know, um, I, we had a really interesting insight that if we use labels like depression on videos or content I was delivering, people were significantly less likely to share that with somebody else on their page. Whereas if I just, if I had something like having a tough day or I just phrased it differently, um, people were way more likely to share it because that, so it was kind of normalizing language. Yeah, of course. I mean, one of the things that's happened through the podcast is I've realized the importance of identification of realizing other people have similar feelings to you and that yeah. sometimes feelings themselves can be isolating if you don't, yeah. if you don't, if you can't share them. And yeah. one of the things I think has happened in the past four or five years amongst the acting community is a greater sense of admitting the truth behind the two-dimensional social media picture that's presented. And I think that's yeah. only, that's, that's gotta be a good thing uh, as long as we keep doing it. Because always there's a danger with all these things that we come out of lockdown. Everybody's so desperate to present a positive image that they go back again. You know, we don't know yeah. what's going to happen and it'd be interesting to see, I guess. Um, now I'm going to kind of um, wrap up uh, with a few questions in the name of identification. Uh, that I normally ask actors. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and uh, I've never done it with anybody who isn't an actor. So after like 60 episodes, you're the first non-performer. <laughs> so I guess the first thing I should say I'm to you is, I hadn't planned to ask this one, but it's just occurred to me. Um, have you ever been on stage? What's your first memory of being on stage? I have actually. I went to music and drama school when I was a kid. So that's the interesting thing. So um, yeah, I have. And I can remember... I grew up in a working class part of Belfast called Ardoing. You've probably heard of it. I have, yep. And so I played piano and stuff. So it was almost a bit of a Billy Elliot story but with a piano. And um, I often joke about this, you know, Irish, Catholic and gay. It wasn't exactly a smooth run. <laughs> I'm playing so, the piano. I mean, you were just I, asking I, for I played, it. I played the piano. That was the kind of 
that was a fairy dust on top. <laughs> but, I, but, I, but I can remember being on stage doing that. The first time I ever played in my secondary school, um, I wasn't sure what to do. And I think, I think my music teacher at the time said, oh, why don't you play a bit of Beethoven or something? And I said, you haven't seen the school I go to. Um, he said, well, what are you going to do? So I used to, I, I have quite a good ear, so I would hear a tune and I would pick it up really, really quickly. And I remember I was about 13, 14 at the time and I played Bad Manners. I don't know if you remember them back in the day. Yep. And I remember playing a Bad Manners tune and because they all knew what it was, then suddenly I, I kind of was a hero for a moment. Rock and roll. Yeah. load of applause and stuff. And it's really interesting that you, you ask this question because I, I'd never really had that before, but I remember the kind of the applause, the, they've been accepted, um, was really important to me at that time. And it made me realize when I look back on it now, it got it really gave me a validation of fitting in and not being the odd one out anymore. And, you know, there was a coolness about it that I'd never really had before because it was, you know, getting a tough time about playing the piano, being different. You know, it, you know, I was, I was clearly different to the other kids and they picked up on that. So when I, when I, when I work with performers, I always think about that. You know, I think, I think every performer at some level wants validation. And I don't think it's necessarily a problem with that. I think as long as you know that sometimes you seek validation and know why you seek it, then you, you can manage it. I think the danger is when I work with performers who, do, who will say they're not seeking validation, they don't care when actually really they do. Yeah. That can get all sorts of problems because then when they don't get the validation, they can crash quite quickly. So I think, you know, like all of this stuff, it's about being truthful with yourself and knowing who you are. Yeah. You know, there's no, nothing wrong with any of these things. As long as we know our stuff and we can work with it, then you, you, you can navigate that stuff and move forward with it. It's the not knowing that causes the problems. Um, so let's say you, you, let's assume then that you didn't take a professional uh, route into performance and you ended up doing what you're doing now. Have you ever considered giving up? Giving up. What you're doing now? Well, here's the interesting thing is when you do the books and stuff, you end up getting pulled off in different directions. And, you know, I'm going to start working on the third book soon. So you become busier in a different way. Um, but to be honest, my heart and soul is in the individual work. When I'm sat in a room with somebody or if I'm Skyping somebody and I'm working with them individually, I mean, that, that's where the real work is. You know, that's where, that's where my kind of passion is because you're, you're taking somebody on a journey on their life and you're watching them transform. And you're watching them come alive in a very, very different way. And I think, you know, there's three stages in, in, in therapy. You get somebody at the beginning and they may be feeling a bit desperate or a bit hopeless or a bit kind of demoralized by life. And then you kind of help them make sense of their story and rebuild. But then you kind of have to have that mid-stage in therapy where you're just kind of watching them, you know, discover a different version of who they are. And then I suppose towards the end of therapy, you're just kind of watching people literally take off and live their life in a very, very different way. And I think that's a, I mean, that's a massive privilege. Mm. So I would never want to give that up. Um, I think I have to balance it more carefully now between. Yeah, of course. Um, So if you could go back and offer young Owen, the pianist um, at that school, a piece of advice, if you could find him after that performance or before, tap him on the shoulder and say, listen, Owen, I I want to tell you something. What do you think you might tell him to make his path and journey not necessarily towards where you are now, but just his path and journey a little bit clearer, a little bit easier. I think I probably would have, I would tell my younger self to, you know, to trust himself a lot more that I don't need to fit in. 
and that I don't need to prove myself and that I don't need to, I don't need to be like everyone else. Um, and I think I spent a long, a long time in my kind of teenage years trying to do that, fit in and not be found out. So I think I would probably, yeah, I would really talk. I would tell myself, I would tell my younger self to, to trust himself a lot more and that uh, to celebrate the difference rather than see it as a bad thing or a negative thing. Thanks very much. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but uh, I'm really genuinely pleased that you said you would do it. Um, I hope it hasn't been too painful. Not at all. I've really enjoyed it. As, as I said earlier, it's great hearing a voice from home. So it, um, <laughs> it feels like we could be in a pub having a pint, having a I know. Chat, someday, really, someday we might be. Who knows who if knows? pub's ever open? Who knows? Exactly. We'll get there. Thanks very much, John. I really appreciate you're, it. You're very welcome, Jonathan. Lovely to chat to you. So there you have it, the first non-actor Honest Actors with Owen O'Kane. I may do a few more of those down the line. I'm not sure. I have an idea for a few more guests that I think would be really special. But for now, that's it from me in lockdown. There's another episode out today, a more traditional Honest Actors chat with actress Laura Gordain. You may remember a few years ago, she wrote a blog about how to feel like an actor when you're not working as an actor. That's something I guess we're all struggling with at the minute. Laura's got some great thoughts. You can check that out on iTunes or Acast, wherever you got this podcast. You may, as I often say, have nothing to do but sit and wait for it to queue up if you're lucky. There's also three full series of cracking conversations and about six, I think, so far this series. Three Honest Actors Chats and three Lockdown Specials. So if you haven't heard all of those, go back and have a listen. Thanks for joining me this time around. Stay safe. Speak to you soon. Whoa, 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 whoa. I forgot something very important. Sorry. The lovely ladies at the 98% podcast will be doing a Zoom webinar soon with a psychologist on how to maintain a positive mental attitude during this time of the pandemic and afterwards with stepping back into an uncertain industry. So if you liked my little chat with Owen, you're bound to love that. They're bound to do a brilliant job on that as well. Um, I think it's one of the host's dad, who's a performance psychologist and specializes in resilience and well-being. He was on series one of the podcast. It's one of their most listened to episodes. So he's coming back to do a Zoom webinar and talk about handling lockdown. So if you don't listen to the 98% podcast, why do you not listen to the 98% podcast? Give it a listen. It really is a cracker. And um, I think they've stolen all my listeners, to be honest. But uh, I couldn't be happier for them. So 98% Pod have got an upcoming webinar with a psychologist. Okay, so now I'm done. Speak to you soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.